Welcome to Retirementals. My name is Jay Gusher, and I'm your temporary host for these sessions that you see around you. I'm here to introduce yet another Advisor 3.0 session that we have for you today. In fact, our last one. Not our last one ever, because we'll be making more, I'm sure. But our last one in this sort of run. You'll still be able to see everything from the day if you just head to timeline.co forward slash advisor 3.0. Everything that you're going to need is absolutely there. And like I said last time, like I said before, more information about how to sign up to our 2024 mailing list. So you essentially just don't don't miss anything. But swiftly moving on, because I don't want to waste too much of your time. Today's session involves the likes of our very own Nikki Hilton-Jones, Clements from the CCLA, Samantha from Net Purpose, and Bavak from HSBC. Pioneers all round again. I love using that word, pioneers. Two, two weeks in a row. Not going to get rid of it. And before I go any further, I absolutely will apologize if I've just butchered every single name just then. Obviously, hope you enjoy it. Again, leave us a review. Like I said last time, if you can, that'd be great. More importantly, just as these are podcasts, doesn't mean you can't actually watch them, which is an insane thing to say uh, now. But hey, it's 2023. So you can head over to retirementals.co.uk and watch every single podcast we've put out. Every single one has been recorded. Every single one has been put out. Um, next week, we'll resume as... Resume? Wow. Next week, we'll resume as normal. Um... I don't think I'm going to tease who the guest is, but it's a good one. It's a very, very good one. Very lovely gentleman. Um, so you're all going to enjoy that. However, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into it, shall we? Uh, today's session, does ESG investing move the needle in the real world? Please enjoy. You're listening to Retirementals. Hello, hope you're enjoying the day so far. Um, this panel, as you know, we're going to look at ESG investing in particular, and particularly from an innovative stance. Um, we know that there's been huge growth in ESG products and in ESG investment over the last decade or so. And the latest figure I could find indicates that it's two and a half trillion dollars now that's gone into this space. Um, and many IFAs are looking at it as their core offering. Um, advisory firms are adopting it, pushed by consumers. And eValue recently found that 94% of consumers think that at least one ESG criteria is important and, and should be paid attention to. So that's leading to the regulatory focus that we're seeing and the, the call for transparency that consumer duty is going to bring with it as well. Um, we're really lucky to have some industry experts with us today. We have Sam Duncan, who's the CEO and founder of Net Purpose. Um, Sam's background was on the institutional side, working with sustainable products at Goldman's and with a boutique manager. Um, and she faced firsthand the difficulties there can be in getting data needed to invest um, in the best way. So she founded Net Purpose, which aims to solve that problem for investors. Um, Clemence is an ESG integration manager at CCLA, which specializes in looking after charities, assets, um, particularly from a sustainability perspective. And we have Bhavit Patel from HSBC. Bhavit works with investors helping them select ETFs and index-based products, um, not just across ESG, but across core investment as well. So he's got a lot of experience there across all asset classes, really. Um, we are going to chat. I've got a couple of questions to kick off, but please, the floor is open. Raise your hand. Alex has a microphone. 
and can come to you so that everyone can hear can hear the question too. Um, so, I mean, to start, we know that the FCA is looking at this. They've defined sustainable products as, I don't want to misquote them, so I'll read, that are the product that plausibly achieves or encourages positive sustainability outcomes. Um, and they really want to make sure, there's a big push to make sure that products are focusing on making real world impacts and not just being labels. How close do you think we are to actually getting to that point? Um, and and what, what, what's the current state of play? Um, would you like to start with that one, Clemence, if I come to you first, because I know that you've got some, some views. You use, <laughs> got opinions. Um, I think I've read in Responsible Investor, I think something like 4% of the mutual fund investment fund universe worldwide don't quote me on this, maybe just the UK with just US, actually will be able to achieve a label either with the American or the UK or the EU labeling system. So the state of play is most of the stuff you probably may or may not have recommended to clients is probably just, woohoo, it's green. And actually in, it might make your clients feel good because it excludes stuff, which is you know a very valid thing to do but whether it actually achieves real world outcomes like real world emissions reductions, real world harm reductions, yet to see whether that's really the case. So I think at the moment it doesn't look promising that actually a lot of, that the products are affecting the real world change we need to see to, well, to you know, prevent climate change and alleviate modern slavery and, and all sorts of other things. Okay, perfect. Would you echo that or are you seeing something different? Uh, yes, I would say. Um, we at HSBC have got 55 billion, we say, under management in ESG uh, strategies, and that's across index and active impact. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Clemence and say that the impact funds have the meaningful difference. Um, and the other bit, I'm sure, you know, uh, which we're going to go on to is engagement. So if you are in investing in listed companies which most advisors are almost all of them i'll you know i'll say um it's the engagement that matters as opposed to the um ownership per se um and again you know we'll we'll, we'll come on to that um as as we go on and sam how do you see the state of play at the moment so slightly more optimistic um i will say that a couple two major trends i would say one is I think the definition of ESG, not even the definition, the language. So ESG is not the same as sustainable, but we have for many years thought that it was the same thing. And I think a lot of investors are backing ESG rated products that are rated A, thinking that they are sustainable and not realizing that actually ESG is measuring financial risk, not sustainable outcomes. That's really just come apparent, I think, to a lot of people over the last year or so. And so there's quite a big push now to measure sustainable outcomes on, on every fund. Um, and I think that it is true probably that like today you could classify 4% as really achieving significant outcomes. But the, the number and proportion of fund managers that are trying to actually achieve sustainable outcomes is probably more like 80%. 80% of all global capital today is committed to invest more sustainably, signed up to UNPRI. 
So there's a big portion of people who thought they were investing sustainably who are not, who I do think are now shifting to think, well, how can I invest more sustainably? And I think you will see quite a big um, uptick in funds that are demonstrating sustainable outcomes. I think that's really interesting that you've that gap there. What are they achieving if they're not achieving sustainable outcomes? What what are they gearing to currently? Well, they're using ESG ratings um, to declare that this is an ESG fund or an ESG index. I think the disconnect has been the ESG, the ratings are not measuring sustainability. They're measuring the financial impact on a company of social and environmental risks. Um, it's quite strange. So clear example, because it's kind of hard to get your mind around that. The S&P 500 is rated an A with MSCI ESG and it's growing its carbon emissions by about 10% every year. It needs to be reducing by negative like 8%. And I think Rio Tinto and Tesla, they're rated both rated A on an ESG. So I think that's the confusion that people thought that. So that's what they're doing. They're managing towards ESG ratings, but they're not actually measuring outcomes. I just want to add also to ESG ratings. If you take ESG ratings from different providers, I think the correlation factor is something like 0.4. So sustainability is going to tell you X company is A and MSA is going to tell you, oh, no, they're like, oh, F, like we don't like them or something like that. So ESG ratings are not a good basis to, to manage a fund if you want to have real outcomes. If you dig into that, how does a company like Rio Tinto end up with an A rating? What's, what, what are the pieces of that puzzle? They do, a they do a best of sector approach. So they basically segment the sectors and then they say within the mining industry, mm. what's the best? And then within the a vehicle industry, what's the best? But the best is defined according to a proprietary methodology that no one knows exactly what they're measuring. Mm. Um, and that's how you get in two sectors that are clearly not both sustainable um, A's. And I think that's what leads to the confusion. I, I can probably say that the one thing with rating agencies that differs is also, for example, on MSCI, they give, um, well, disclosures matter. And if you if a company doesn't disclose, MSCI will give it the average sector rating, uh, whereas someone like FTSE for, give it a zero. So again, there are nuances and differences between those scoring um, you know, metrics that they use. So, you know, so obviously get inflation in the MSCI index and um, fairly, I guess, with FTSE, you get a zero, which, you know, if you're not disclosing information, you're basically probably pretty bad. Um. So, that I mean, that deals with the problems in the index world. When you're making these decisions more on a stock-picking basis, Clemence, which I think is what CCLA is doing, how do you tackle those kind of problems? So... At CCLA, we first have um, aligning uh, our investments with our clients' values. So because we have charities, churches, and local authorities, your usual suspects get excluded, like weapons, tobacco, armament, gambling, alcohol. Not for the Catholics, though. They like alcohol. Um, <laughs> and then on that basis, you exclude quite a lot of things that people would find, you know, don't want to have in their investments. Um, and then, and then we have to look at assessing companies, right? So if we look at a company like Microsoft or whatever, we have to look at, we use the SASB framework for that, which again, looks at ESG risks. It doesn't look at 
real world outcomes. It looks at whether um, the SASB framework basically tells you like a number of indicators you can look at depending on which sector the company is in. And so it looks at only material things because when you open MSCI ESG manager with all the indicators, there's like thousands of, there's thousands of things I could look at every day. Overwhelming. So we have, you have to sort of bucket it in like something that makes sense. Some, you have to look at something that's material. So for Rio Tinto, you'd look at number of injuries because they're mining, they have people with machines and stuff. At Microsoft, they're all sitting down at a desk. Number of injuries, not very material thing to look at. Um, and then, um, and then, you know, if the financials are okay, if they don't violate any sort of um, UN Global Compact type things, if they don't have any major severe, severe controversies, then they could we could invest in them. Um, but then it doesn't stop there because obviously you have to review these things, and then you have to, and then we usually then engage. So that's when we are actors in the market. So we have have like Act Assess Align, it's our framework, and then we engage with companies, but. I say, because we're in the active world at CCLA, we review every single company. And there are sometimes, and I guess the, the small advantage there is, is that sometimes somebody would come with a company and you'd be like, well, technically, according to the rules, we could invest in it, but really will the clients like it? And that's why we can you have a human who makes a decision, which just is me and my and my boss. And we're like, nah, probably not. And then we just go yeah, like, sorry, mate, to move on. <laughs> test as well as yeah. the, what the numbers say. Yeah. yeah. And how how would do you think as when what should advisors look for when they're selecting funds off the shelf to invest in, but not having the luxury of picking the individual companies in that way? How do you guide people, Bav, on the on the index side, especially? Um, so on the index side, it, it there is a proliferation of choice now. Um, we obviously ask the clients what they want. Um, Exclusions can be one way that people look at things. Uh, some people look at things on the tilting side. So are you aiming, again, target to reduce carbon intensity? So we have some funds and we aim to improve ESG outcomes, which is score. So your aggregate score has to be 20% above the parent and your carbon intensity has to be half of what the parent index is. And we do that by tilting the portfolio and excluding. So effectively, you're getting rid of some oil and gas, you're getting rid of uh, tobacco, arms, um, you know, gambling firms, uh, that generally improves, improves your ESG score. And then we kind of weight the securities to ensure your carbon intensity is lower than the parent. So some, so some clients do like that. And that's what kind of we consult with clients. We consult with our, we have a responsible investment team who have a view. So before building anything, we kind of consult both. And, and we say, right, what's, what's the best uh, product we can come up with that will kind of fit most people because um, the problem is is that you're never going to find one solution that fits all. That's impossible. Um, although the demo in the room earlier was really interesting because that effectively, once that develops, you could possibly um, have a bespoke solution for each client. Now, so so that was super interesting for me to hear about from Fundman. Um, you know, when, when you can create an index for a client, someone might be might be a smoker, a chain smoker, so wants tobacco, but actually cares more about carbon and alcohol, you know, and, and they can exclude those. I don't see any asset provider or asset manager including tobacco and excluding alcohol, right? That they're either going to do both, you know, or none. So, you know, those kind of movements, I think, are, are where the progress is. And us at HSBC, we tend to consult both sides and we try to find something that will fit the broader market because unfortunately we're not in a place where we can, um, you know, offer 
a single solution for a single client at the moment. But you alluded to stewardship earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's very interesting when we look at exclusions and, and the direct indexing solutions are going to be very exclusion based. So if you bring that back to actual change in the real world, what, how does that fit together? How do we pull that round? If we if we avoid, how do we engage? So, and, and this is, I mean, it's a great question because this is where the difference lies. Um, you know, I've worked at very big asset managers, like you'll have BlackRock, who, for example, you know, used to have 50 billion or something in the S&P 500 ETF. You can buy an S&P 500 ETF from HSBC. We've probably got 5 billion in there. It's the same fund. You're going to get the more or less the same performance, give or take a few basis points. Um, but the way that the engagement happens is completely different, right? Um, so I think clients will have to look at the underlying firms and see where are they taking those actions because you can buy the same things. It's what you do with those that matters and that's what makes the difference. You know, um, for example, I know with HSBC, I've got my numbers here. Um, you know, we did 2,000 engagements last year. 20% of those were with CEOs where we will drive our policies which are surrounded, you know, it might be equal wage, not equal, but it might be more fair wage kind of equality. It might be around biodiversity. And that's where we try to kind of target focus areas um, for change, even though the instrument is arguably passive. Um, so, yeah, and it's education, I think, which is the big thing uh, that matters. Yeah, I think um, having been an advisor and now being on the other side of the table, um, I think as advisors, and I've been certainly, you know, doing that as well. If we, we've really tried, to, or we're still trying to accommodate our clients' preferences to the T as much as we can, and I think lots of clients have then the feeling that because they're not investing in something, they're not partaking in any harm, which simply isn't true. And while you know, you might say I don't want to invest in tobacco because X, Y, Z. It's very, you know, that I understand that. It's brilliant. It doesn't wash your hands from the problem. You can't portfolio manage yourself out of the climate crisis. If you buy a 1.5 degree aligned fund, it is not solving the climate crisis. It is making you and your clients feel better, which, you know, all for good mental health and well-being, but that is what, is what you're buying. You have to be very clear about that. And so that's why corporate engagement, policy engagement is very, very important when you buy a, f- uh, a fund, what you should more focus on is which fund manager and asset manager you are buying above what's actually in the portfolio. Especially if you buy index funds, don't, re- don't in the end you don't really care as much as what's in there because you're buying three to ten thousand companies. Is who's your index manager? What kind of engagement are they doing? What are their voting policies? Um, what kind of they're not going to be able to engage with all their companies, but do they have a scope of companies they're going to engage? Uh, on and what are they going to ask them and what are they trying to push forward because if because that's the only way really we're going to be able to affect real world change and then we're going to have great data to tell us that we're actually making it happen so that's that that we have to dis- distinguish that and we have to be very real about that with our clients um because some clients will get down the rabbit hole trying to pay loads and loads of money for very fancy mps as we've heard thinking they're doing great stuff by avoiding all sorts of things and saving the planet with it, but they're not. So we have to be very, very clear about that. Oh, you raised a good point um, about how do we actually measure it as well? Um, how do we know that we've achieved what the client has set out to do? 
what in what ways would you would you monitor that? I'll start, but you can. You have probably more knowledge. Um, I think you have to have a clear engagement ask, and then you have to see whether, and then you can measure whether you know. I want, for example, Amazon to have a um, to recognize GMB union up in Coventry. Very topical, um, and that could be your engagement ask to Amazon. You say they they do. I don't know. I haven't read the news. Um, then you can say, tick, right, we've got, we've written them a letter or we've, you know, we've tried to publicly tell them to do this. They've done it. Great. Moving on. We're going to engage with the next thing. So you can sort of have clear engagement ask and then see whether they've, they've, they've done that. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, that's the first thing. It's been very clear. But the other thing is engagement requires a lot of collaboration. There's never just one person or one asset manager who's made something happen. Like Exxon is a very good example. There, Exxon has been subject <laughs> to corporate to engagement by people since like the 1980s around climate change. And the fact that there was this whole engine one, we've got three sort of climate positive directors on the board, has been like a huge collective international generational engagement campaign that is getting us to the point where we are today. So and measuring engagement outcomes is, is I think, uh, can be complex can be sometimes easy but it's a very collective thing like it's not just one person yeah i would just say um i think that there's the there's the measuring the engagement outcomes but then there's measuring the the company's in well impact slash outcomes on people and planet and when i talk about the word outcomes what we mean is instead of saying that a fund is rated an a with an esg rating you're actually measuring the metric tons of carbon emissions, the cubic meters of water a company is using, the metric tons of waste or plastic that they're putting into the into the world, um, the number of people that are employed, the number of women that are employed, the number of people that are provided access to healthcare or financial inclusion, like real tangible things that we can grab onto. Um, and there you can measure those things now. I mean, companies report them. 97% of listed companies report these things, I think, across the spectrum. About 70% of companies actually report their carbon emissions today. And you can, um, it, I think, when you know that it's out there, you know the data are out there, it's then what do you do with it as a fund manager? And I think ultimately um, for a climate crisis, we need to be reducing CO2 emissions. So it's really not rocket science. We need to be taking the absolute amount of emissions that are emitted every year and reducing that by 8% every year between now and 2050 on a global basis to achieve 1.5 degrees. And you can track your year-on-year -year change in carbon emissions of any company that you're holding. It's just that that, that metric's not often surfaced today. It's, it's kind of masked by a rating that's trying to aggregate a lot of different things in one score but to the point on deconstruction and client optimization for values deconstructing it's kind of important because not every client wants to back like a 1.5 degrees maybe they're happy with two degrees but they care more about gender diversity and the pay gap and they can optimize for that so you can measure these things i think that simple year-on-year -year change just like we think about year-on-year -year earnings growth um is possible on these things and what are you saying uh asset managers becoming more demanding of companies to aggregate this and then you know i guess does that knock on and flow through so that we as advisors and customers we ask for those kind of reports 
how do we kick how do we yeah. get it kick started because it's very slow <laughs> it's true how do we catalyze this process <laughs> yes so we are we're a data provider we stream these facts to asset managers we currently power about 110 billion dollars in funds which means there is money moving into these funds um, I think where today most asset managers are sitting is that they are still trying to get a good report on these things. Um, and that's step one, really. Once you've got a report, then you can have a conversation about the fund performance and everyone can look at the fund performance. And you can compare one fund to another fund, et cetera. Um, so I think that's that's basically where we are. But you should be asking for these things. It is possible and we are seeing a big increase in demand for getting to those real-world outcomes. thing that's driving it too is regulation, European regulation with Article 8 and Article 9. I don't know if people are familiar with this lexicon, but Article 9 is a fund that pursues social and environmental objectives. The UK has just issued guidance too around labels for sustainable impact funds or sustainable improver funds. The labels are coming. I think we're probably about a year or two away before it's clear. And I think there's a lot of confusion about what label should I pick and how should I measure. But ask the question. Keep asking the question because it is possible. I think it's just you need people to keep asking probably to the point on engagement. This is an engagement option for asset managers, not just companies, to, to get better at disclosing these indicators. So once I think that the – oh, sorry, is there a question so <clears throat> when you say that the companies are reporting on these uh, ESG parameters, so most of the organizations have a, a lot of their activities outsourced to com uh, countries like China, India, Bangladesh, where some of these rules are maybe not uh, followed. For example, if you, Elon Musk, you know, yesterday commented about the cobalt mining. and uh, Or if you look at the garment industry, most of the garments are manufactured in Dhaka where the working conditions or the pay yeah, nothing is properly monitored. And uh, also, when it comes to shareholding patterns, a lot of shell companies holding in, in countries where these regulations are not strict. So when we say that the companies are reporting on this, are we getting into these complex uh, layers also? Yeah, so um, it's not perfect. Definitely not. I think when I say companies are reporting on it, they're definitely reporting much more than they used to. And I'd say the reporting segments into three buckets, I guess. And the impact a company can have on the world, three buckets. And you can comment, Clemence and Lavic too, and how you see it. But there's the operations of the business. There's the products and services that a company sells and pushes into the world. So lots of plastics, for example, or good things like beyond meat, burger, Tesla, the electric vehicle itself, let alone the battery. And then the supply chain, the whole battery chain to get into an electric vehicle is not pure positive. There's a lot of minerals, et cetera. So on those three buckets, I think we're very good on reporting operational footprint. We're getting much better on reporting the impact of products and services. We're working on supply chain, but the supply chain disclosure is really centered today around climate and CO2 emissions less detail you were just talking about this actually earlier around labor practices and in supply chains yeah like where the garments come from etc um so i think today it's about but it's funny because we could we can't wait to be perfect so i think you've got to marry what disclosure exists plus 
the risks, and maybe you want to talk a bit about this, the risks of different industries to understand what you don't know to complement with what you do. But I don't think we can let that be. We've got to start doing what we can with what we do know. And even those things that we do know are not surfacing themselves in portfolio reports today because we're still muddling all together in a, in a score. No, I think that's. I think that that's interesting. It echoes what um, Van Gogh was saying this morning. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Sometimes we've got to crack on with what we've got and do the best that we can. And um, Bavik, did you want to? I was just going to say that as as an example, we um, you know, I know HSBC with the team. It's not always a one pong approach, and you can't look at third party data. Uh, a lot of asset managers now have um, policies across the board, so it's not just saying we're going to try doing this after looking at the score but the engagement goes with you know one example was Sainsbury's last year where HSBC we partnered with a lot of firms similar to exactly what you said you can't do much by yourself maybe yeah. um, but if you partner you know we partnered with a lot of firms and said right Sainsbury's workers deserve a living wage in London which they weren't paying at the time and there was quite a good paper written you know two pages basically saying it would cost Sainsbury's this much the attrition rate was so high because they didn't pay the living wage um, and we had those details to hand right if, if you have those details to hand and support a certain kind of position on, on, on those, then you can make the difference. And I think there was one big asset manager, which I won't name, which were against it, but almost everybody was with it because they could see that, yeah, you'd be paying out, I think it was 100 million more, but actually you'd probably save about 80 million on the attrition because you have to keep hiring and you know retraining everyone every six months or whatever it was. So um, if, if you just go to that level of data, you can make the difference at the top level, but the firms do have... Um, positions default positions in place to say you know we're not even it might not just be esg the governance might seep into the income side of things as well and real change alex there's a question in the third row here yeah just a question about the fact that it's es and g and how much that gets in the way and focusing on the three factors on which was on most people's arguably with the sustainability climate change etc and trying to approach all of those three does it divert from actually focusing on the environmental aspect uh, sorry i didn't quite understand your question because with esg you're trying to you're trying to affect three different things environmental social and governance so there's obviously gender pay whatever else it is directors etc for some, a lot of clients that I speak to, the big thing is climate and environmental and biodiversity, fine. But by having these conversations with directors, you're obviously trying to cover three bases rather than just one singular aspect. And so is that an issue with ESG investing? Particularly, I would add, from an index-based um, aspect because that's where I come from. Bavit, um, would you like to? Yeah, I mean, my quick answer is no, because they they go together. If you have a strong governance framework, that generally tends to mean that you do care about, you know, sustainability and, um, you know, the environment. You're more aware of your externality. So when, and again, with the engagement team that we have, we have specialists in, for example, biodiversity. You know, there'll be one on um, environment when it comes to things like plastics, for example, you know, we were engaging with Apple to make sure they can make the uh, AirPod kind of more recyclable. Um, and, and then we have certain rules in place where we don't like kind of, you know, CEOs 
being part of the kind of board and certain governance frameworks, which we just don't agree with, which we vote on. But we do think that they all work together in sync. Um, it's not mutually exclusive. So, and, and that's just the default position. So we'd never look at um, a thing siloed, you know, the engagement team works as one and um, considers everything. And we, and we don't focus on too much as well. So we don't just say, right, we're going to try to target 10 things with Sainsbury's, you know, we'll probably try to target two or three in a meeting and that's it, because those things will make a change as opposed to try doing 10 and doing none of them. Um, and I think that's how most managers look at this, because again, we do partner up with a lot, uh, a lot of other Um, so I'm talking about micro things as opposed to the big picture. I mean, like we might just focus on living wage, changing your chairman and, you know, reducing some of the packaging, you know, on, on vegetables, for example, um, which might touch on each one, but still is, you know, yes, from a higher up, you might think that's ESNG, um, but they do kind of work together. And I think long term that just works. Yeah, and I would maybe compliment just by saying I think it. So the contrary view would be it can be distracting. I think you're right if you've got three priorities on the engagement side, and I love the idea of just do three, don't do a hundred because you're never going to get it all done. But I do think they are different objectives. Yes, like E, S, and G are pursuing different goals, and I do think having. I mean, I'm a bit simple maybe, but like having been an investment banker at Goldman for a number of years. I mean, we optimized to profit, 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 profit. I mean, financial returns is one thing really like that you're trying to optimize. So I do think adding social, environmental, energy, affordable housing, financial, I mean, it's like a lot for any portfolio manager to think about. So I often say, think progress is just add one more objective to your existing objective and see how that can fit and maybe it is climate like that's one goal that you could start to think about your portfolio different in for others it might be gender i think trying to do it all at once can sometimes be overwhelming it's a it's a multi-factor optimization equation if you're going to do everything and i don't know that we have all the models to do that well yet does that mean that thematic funds are more likely to be able to meet what our clients are looking for? You know, so we should assess what if the client wants E or S or G and then pick a thematic fund that's going to meet that need. Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested in what you guys think because you're managing, but I, we do see a rise on our side of thematic funds and it's much simpler to measure the performance on a clean energy fund financial returns and investing in more clean energy and then a gender fund and then a climate fund um, that is across the board. But you do see a lot of SDG impact funds and others too. I think that's like a, it's a diversity of themes. It's complicated to measure, but yeah. Um, I think, as I said before, ASG, well, impact funds or thematic funds can be great to appease our conscience, but they're not fixing the problem. So, and I, I'm all for, I think there's some great, you know, impact funds out there where you go like, oh, this fund invests in clean tech and, and then you're very happy because you're buying public equity shares in clean tech, which is not helping them produce more clean tech stuff. It's just pushing the price up because you're buying more shares of them. You're then supporting them because you feel good about them. And that's fine. Again, it's about personal preferences, but they should also form part of a wider investment strategy that is diversified, 
you know, because if you just invest in one thing, you exclude everything else, you, there's going to be performance and probably cost implications to that. So I think thematic funds can be useful to, you know, to adapt client preferences, but ultimately you have to look at the bigger picture and you're not going to solve the climate crisis with a clean tech fund that's publicly listed equity. If you want to, if you have like an EIS VCT private equity cl clean tech fund and everybody's piling billions into that and we're revolutionizing the way we produce energy in this country, yes, <laughs> that's what we need to do. That's a good thematic fund because it's scaling up companies that otherwise wouldn't be there. Once a company is listed, the shares are on the market and all us, all of us buying and selling them, the company's just sitting there going like, yeah, you fight over the, the shares. I'm just here. My balance sheet isn't affected. I'm still doing my thing. So, so we have to, we have to get away from the sense that just because we're selling our shares, we're somehow affecting the company. We're not really, um, so if it's, if it's to scale up like the really interesting stuff, like private equity is really the way to have real world measurable, scalable impact through finance. Hi there. Um, it's kind of related to the point you just made there. So obviously just thinking about um, does ESG investing move the needle in the real world? Apart from engagement, you know, the, the main kind of method that seems to be used is you know, either outright exclusion or, or kind of tilting. Is there any research at all that shows that kind of, you know, the, the firms that are out of favor, that it has any effect on the share price or the or the behavior of the firms? Because it, it seems like, you know, it's that seems to be the fundamental approach that everyone's kind of buying into. Um, is it possible to demonstrate that or is it just, are there too many variables, you know? Um, I'm, I'm aware that some research has been done around that. Um, I think there can be some short-term effects but I don't think there's any there's data that shows that if you know if loads of people suddenly divest from an oil company that they the oil company suddenly will change its behavior significantly. There has been some anecdotal evidence of it, but there's no blanket evidence that if everybody divests from oil and gas PLC that it's going to change anything. If anything, which is something we really don't want and is very scary, is when these companies get taken private because then you've got no power whatsoever. Like Twitter, Aramco, I don't know how to engage with them because they're private companies. What do we do? They're just going to continue doing what they, what they want. And, and then you've got no insight and no, no power whatsoever. I'd, and at, at the risk, I'd just add of um, conversations we have around the desk. One we had, don't quote me on this, um, I don't want to lose my job, um, is what, you know, and it's a good question because what if you just had a fund and how many of your clients would buy it if we just invested in alcohol, tobacco, oil and gas, the worst of the worst, and actually engaged with them. I'd love to do that. Right. And, and <laughs> that's something that I always propose to my product team, and they laugh it off. And I was like, actually, it'd be interesting because if if you if you re if you launched a fund that just invested in the worst, but had an engagement plan to go with it, is that bad? Would your clients buy it? And that's the question I do ask myself, when I propose it to my team. I think Clarence is applying for the job of fund manager <laughs> for that fund. <laughs> Um, I can hear the mariachi bands. I think we've maybe got time for one more question. Yeah, sorry, one more question. I'll make it. Um, I'll make it very quick. Um, so, Clement, you mentioned about the, the cost of ESG data. You said you know a lot of people will pay a lot of money for ESG data, um, and it's something we're trying to solve our business green growth. Is do you think there's a pseudo monopoly on on really good ESG data? Do you think not having it available for um, 
for, for companies all across kind of the value chain um, creates worse outcomes for, for the end investor? And, and do you think there's a problem to be solved there? I, I know my MSCI bill every year. Um, it's a lot of money. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think there are some very big players out there and there are some smaller players which get bought up. And so it gets difficult to say, oh, we're going to go and buy this data from you because then there's been a lot of aggregation and then that can, you know, consolidation and stuff. <laughs> Don't really like that. <laughs> um, and there is the lack of data is also not great. Like we have an engagement program at CCLA focused on modern slavery and we're trying to, everything's very policy based engagement, but we're trying to really measure the outcome of that and because it's like five ten suppliers down the chain it's very very difficult and so it's very difficult to have transparency and then hold companies accountable and them then holding their suppliers accountable on these things and modern slavery is like a huge huge issue there's something like i don't know latest figures but like millions and millions of people in forced labor around the world um many who, who in the uk as well in all our supply chains who have come through the seasonal worker scheme um it, as well so it's it's a massive issue that doesn't get talked about and because we don't have data on this it's very very difficult to combat and fix so yeah if the cost was brought down that would be great because then we could also charge less for products i would hope that they would do that um and i would also hope that they have better interface as well as to how you deal with the data because some big players are just sitting on the laurels on the data and you're just yeah you're just wasting time really so ai <laughs> <laughs> it's really exciting in that space. Thank you all very much. Sarah Clarence Fabric has been really interesting. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the question. if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together. Thank you, thank you very much guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline Retirement Planning Software and Bytech Low Cost Flat Fee Model Portfolio Manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on money. Until next time, thank you.